Hey, this is David and Nicole Binion, pastors of Dwell Church. We're so glad you've joined us and we hope you enjoy today's message. Wonderful Jesus, we approach your word, Lord, like hungry children. Lord, your word is, your word is powerful. Your word is holy. Lord, we refuse to treat your word as common here. But Lord, we treat your word as holy. We treat your word, Lord, with sobriety in our hearts. So Father, as the word is delivered, I pray that hearts would be marked, that people would long to be with you. People would long to know you in a fresh way. So precious Lord, I just pray for the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation to flood every heart and every mind in Jesus' name. Let's all say amen. Amen. Well, um, I'm going to be closing out our series that we've been doing called Faith Declarations. How many have been enjoying what Pastor David has been bringing with Faith Declarations? And so um, tonight I'm going to be wrapping it up, and we have an awesome new series we're going to start next Sunday. But the title of this talk tonight, I've titled this Drawing Near by Faith. Drawing Near by Faith. And so uh, you know, if you, could, if you could cut my heart open and see the DNA of my heart of what I burn for above anything else, I'm sure you guys know this, I burn to be near the Lord. That has been an ache in my heart. It's been a groan in my soul ever since, really, I was a little boy. Um, the Lord marked me when I was like seven years old. I got a taste of his presence, and I was just like, I am ruined. I am ruined for anything else. I, I have to have him, him and him alone. And I, I really credit a lot of why I stayed the course in high school and college to that encounter I had as a child. And that's why I'm so passionate about giving children and youth encounters when they are young. Because when you taste this Jesus, then you lose your taste for anything else this world can give you. And so I'm going to be teaching on drawing near by faith. And um, I want to break down the idea, kind of that... Faith is the fuel that takes us into nearness with the Lord. Faith is the fuel that draws us into nearness with the Lord. And, you know, as I was praying into this, um, this teaching tonight, I kind of found myself like <laughs> with a little bit of resistance of not really wanting to teach on faith. And I'm like, Lord, why, why is that? Why do I have a lot of negative connotations when I think about faith teaching? And I, I, really, I realized when I sat with the Lord that um, faith had kind of been a, attached to a lot of abusive teachings in my upbringing. Um, I realized that a lot of my life I had heard faith teachings that kind of teach you how to view God as a genie in the bottle or view God, a uh, genie in the bottle with like three wishes or view God as this ATM machine that you go to him, press a button, then you get what you need. And so that is kind of why I had like this, this mixed feelings toward faith. And so kind of a lot of my upbringing kind of taught me, like, if you just shout it loud enough and declare it a hundred times, then you're going to be driving a nicer car in a nicer house, flying an airplane, and having a nice vacation, which that's all amazing. God wants you blessed much more than you want yourself blessed. That is part of faith. But I want to suggest 
that the apex of faith, that the mountain, the Mount Everest of faith is not unto just me and you driving nicer cars or living in nicer houses. The goal of faith is that me and you would look like the Son of God, that we would look like King Jesus. That is what faith is unto, that we would look like King Jesus. There is a greater goal of faith than just making a bad situation turn into a good situation. It's, Lord, what do you want to do in me and through me in the process of making this mountain move? It's like God is more interested in the process than he is of outcomes. <laughs> he is more interested. He does not develop our lives on stage. He develops our lives in secret. And so whenever a mountain comes in your way, the knee-jerk reaction is just like, make this mountain move. But I want to suggest that there is a deeper goal that the Lord has for us. Instead of just making this mountain move, it's Lord what do you want to do in me? What, do you, what kind of character do you want to build in me? What kind of patience do you want to build in me in the process of this mountain moving? God is more into processes than he is in a destiny sometimes, I believe. Yield to the process. So not only was faith kind of a shallow term for me, but um, it was kind of like I would walk up to someone at church and they could have had the worst week of their lives. And I would look at them and say, how, how are you doing today? And the response would be, I am blessed and highly favored. Nothing can take me down. And I'm like, that's great, but you just had this situation happen. How are you? I am blessed and highly favored. And it's almost like faith was used as this like mask, this thing to masquerade what's really going on in here. And I just want to say that God enjoys your emotions. Like that's what makes us human beings is that we have the capacity to feel pain. We have the capacity to feel rejection. And so it won't do any good for you or me to just masquerade my pain and slap faith on it. You know, that's, that's kind of what I want to get us into. We, we see the Psalms. David's life was an open book before God. He said, this is how I feel. He didn't just say, I am constantly in a state of happiness. No, Lord, I'm actually in pain right now. I'm, I'm actually not doing so good right now. And then he would tie it up with a nice bow by saying, Lord, you are good. Lord, you are faithful. So what, what really set me free from this is I heard a teaching from Bill Johnson. He, he had this quote. He said, he said this, faith does not deny a problem's existence. It just denies a problem, a place of influence in your life. I'll let that soak in. Faith does not deny a problem's existence. It just denies that problem a place of influence in my life. In other words, true faith is not me denying the reality of a problem. It's just me denying that problem a place of influence in my life. So imagine if I got hit with a crazy medical diagnosis or an unexpected bill came in the mail. It won't do me any good to just ignore the existence of the reality I'm facing. But what faith does, faith doesn't ignore the reality. Faith says, I refuse to submit to the lordship of that reality. There is a higher lordship that I submit to. I refuse to make this situation lord over my life. That's what faith is. It's not denying a problem's existence. It's just denying that problem a place of lordship and authority in our lives. So I felt like the Holy Spirit asked me this week, 
will you give me permission to reintroduce faith to you? <laughs> and that's what I want to ask us tonight. Will you give the Lord permission to reintroduce faith to you? So I want to start. I want to open our Bibles and make this an official Christian teaching. <laughs> Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll start reading in verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw what? Near. Let us draw near. How do we draw near? with a true heart in full assurance of what? Faith. faith. How do we draw near to God? By faith. So please notice, the goal of faith that the writer of Hebrews gives us, which, the, just a side note, the writer of Hebrews, it's kind of contested. Um, a lot of people believe it's Paul, which I personally believe it's Paul, but the writer of Hebrews was never named. But the writer of Hebrews is connecting right here directly connecting a life of faith to a life of drawing near to the face of Jesus. And when I read that, I realized that is something that my heart can latch onto. That is something that is not just a shallow thing of approaching God just to like an ATM machine. That's not treating God like a genie in the bottle. But I know that faith is unto something, and it's not unto a new car or a nicer house. That's, that's side. That's a peripheral thing. I like, that. I like those stuff. I'm not saying that those things are bad, but I'm just saying let's not make that number one. Let's make that side a side issue. That faith is not unto stuff. Faith is unto being near to the face of Jesus. That's what faith is unto. I shared this New Year's Eve, I think, when I did transition. Actually, I'm going to wait to share that story. I'm going to go next to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It kind of defines faith for us, this, this chapter. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. That's just amazing right there. The universe was formed at God's command. When God speaks, he creates worlds. That's incredible. So that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Verse 6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. And I've heard this over and over again, and I think it's really important for us to not become numb to scriptures that we hear constantly over and over again, or else we'll miss a revelation. But what's incredible here is that you and me as believers, we don't have to wander aimlessly and try to figure out or guess what pleases this God of the universe. He would be a cruel father if he just made us guess to figure out what pleases him. What is the thing that pleases him? We don't have to guess. We don't have to wander aimlessly to figure out what pleases God. It says explicitly right here, a life of faith is what pleases God. And I want to say that faith is not just shouting at the top of your lungs. <laughs> I've seen a lot of people who can shout really loud who don't have much faith. Faith is like quiet strength. You don't have to shout it all the time, but it's almost like this quiet confidence 
that I have faith that I know that this thing is going to work out. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know that this is going to work out. It says, continue reading. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who what? Earnestly seek him. So again, the writer of Hebrews is connecting faith to nearness to God, to seeking God. This thing called faith is fuel for the secret place. It's fuel to know him. So uh, the day before New Year's Eve, um, Emily and I were sitting down with each other and she kind of asked me, what do you feel like the Lord is saying for you this year, specifically in our family? And I was like, I don't really know. I haven't really thought about it. Um, it's been kind of crazy with the baby and everything. And so that night I just asked the Lord, what, do you, what, what are you saying this year? What is the word of the year that you want me to lean into? And I didn't get anything right there in the moment, but I woke up the next morning, 5 a.m., our baby Camila was crying, so I went and grabbed her. And just a disclaimer, all of my preacher stories are going to have to deal with my daughter, just so you know, just a disclaimer. I don't apologize for it. <laughs> but I grabbed her, and at the time, a month ago, her favorite position was right here, right on your chest. That was her favorite position. So I put her there, and there was this gap between her head and my head, and she was just not content. She wanted, she squirmed, she cried, she just uh, to do whatever it could to make sure there was no space between my face and her face. And immediately, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, this is what I want from you. I want nearness this year. I don't want any gaps between my face and your face. I don't want any gaps between your language and your lifestyle. <laughs> One of the traps that we can fall into as believers is that, especially in a revival culture and intimacy culture, is that we can have a language of love, but not have a lifestyle that matches that, la that language. And so I wanna, I wanna invite us all this year to remove any gaps in our lives that are between our language and our lifestyle. It's like, <laughs> I don't wanna just talk about loving Jesus. I don't wanna just talk about how beautiful he is. I wanna experience it. This is a kingdom that is experiential. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. And so peace and joy are felt realities. So if the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy, that means two-thirds of the entire kingdom of God is about feeling him. It's about experiencing him. This is a kingdom of experience. So I feel like the Lord is saying, remove the, remove the gaps. <laughs> remove the spaces between your language, and your lifestyle. I was like, Lord, how do I do this? How do I remove gaps? And I, I looked at my daughter. This two-month-old baby has enough faith in her to know if I cry enough, if I squirm enough, I'm going to reach my daddy's face. <laughs> if a two-year-old can have that faith, how much more can we have that faith that we will get to the deep places of his presence that we long for? We will get to those places of healing in our relationships that we're believing for. We'll get to those places where there's gaps between what he's promised and where we're currently at right now. <laughs> See, anytime God gives us a prophetic word, there's immediately a gap between where I am and where he's called me to be. <laughs> and it takes prayer, it takes devotion, it takes radical worship to minimize the gap between where we're at and where he's calling us to be. So I wanna continue by going to Psalm 73. So Psalm 73 was 
actually not written by King David. Psalm 73 was written by a man named Asaph. And what's really cool about Asaph is that King David employed Asaph when he built the tabernacle. He employed Asaph as his full-time job was to stand before the ark and give thanks to the Lord. (laughs) That was his job description. Asaph, stand here and tell the Lord thank you all day. That just shows you, first of all, the importance of gratitude and thanksgiving in context of being near to the Lord. (laughs) Uh, Stand here and say thank you. That was Asaph's job. And so I want to read this psalm that Asaph writes, because you would think that a man whose full-time job was to say thank you never had any problems or never got sad or never got bent out of shape. But here we see a window into Asaph's process. And we see that he doesn't masquerade it with uh, spiritual jargon, but he is real before the Lord. He's honest before the Lord. Psalm 73 says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. So he's now taking us into his journey of how he almost slipped up. He said, I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggle. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are, few, they are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Have you ever looked at worldly people around you and think, I am seeking God. I'm living my life in purity and I'm going through these tough seasons, and it looks like they're just prospering and getting the promotions. Nothing bad is happening to them. Have you ever been in a season where you're questioning like that? So this is where Asaph's wrestling match is with God, saying, I am here. My full-time job is to say thanks to the Lord. Why is my life afflicted right now? Why am I going through trauma? Why am I going through afflictions when the guy over here who is wicked is prospering, has more money than I do? has a a, a healthy lifestyle, more health in his life than I do. This is the wrestling, honest wrestling match Asaph is having. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, (laughs) always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. So he's saying, Lord, has this all been in vain? Has me seeking you? Has it all been for nothing? How many of you have had this dialogue with the Lord? This is real. (laughs) Is this all in vain? Me sitting here in your presence every week? Is this in vain? He says, (laughs) all day long, I have been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Sometimes we don't need to let our minds go to places that are too big for our comprehension. It says this. This is where it all changes. Listen closely. This is where it shifts. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. So in other words, Asaph is saying, I had this confusion. I had this swirl, this fog around me until I ascended the hill of the Lord and got into a a higher presence place than I was in last season. 
until I got above the, the swirl, until I got above the fog. That's when I got clarity. How many of you have ever had a terrible day? Maybe you were on the way to church, you're arguing with your spouse, and then you get into the presence of God and is like, oh my gosh, why was I even fighting? This is what Asaph is saying. There's this terminology used, uh, I believe hikers use it, called uh, snake line. Get above the snake line. And apparently, there is this uh, certain altitude that hikers know about where poisonous snakes cannot survive. Poisonous snakes cannot survive this certain altitude above sea level called the snake line. That's where they know I'm safe from poisonous snakes. I want to suggest there is a snake line in the spirit where torment cannot stick to you, where depression, where sickness cannot stay. There are these heights of his presence that he is inviting us to in this next year, in this next season. You might be hearing like, I'm in a fog, I'm in a swirl. Get above the snake line. How we sought the Lord last year will not necessarily be how we need to seek him this year. We need to go to a higher place. We need to go to a deeper place in his presence. This is what he's calling us to. I, um, I shared this story several times um, in my time here at Joel, but I love it. Um, there's a story of an airline pilot who is test flying an airplane that he's wanting to buy. So he takes the plane, gets up in the air. He's at flying altitude. And then he looks and he sees a rat chewing on a fuel line on an airplane. <laughs> I don't know if you like rats or not, but uh, <laughs> I don't like them when I'm on the ground, but he's in a metal tube with a rat. And so he has two options. He could either descend the plane, descend the plane, land it, take care of the rat, or he could ascend the plane to a higher elevation that cuts off oxygen from the rat. He would still have oxygen, but the rat wouldn't have oxygen. So he chooses to take the plane higher, to a higher altitude, cuts off the oxygen of the rat, and fixes the problem. Many times as believers, when we have torment chewing on the lifeline of our souls, when we have pain, when we have sickness chewing on the lifeline of our souls, and we're going higher, higher, typically our knee-jerk reaction is to say, oh, let me stop seeking God. Let me go down and let me deal with this in my own human intellect, in my own human wisdom, in my own human knowledge, instead of pushing the accelerator, taking it up a notch, and going higher to the hill of the Lord, and rendering those things completely lifeless. This is the year to ascend, ascend the hill of the Lord. All right. I want to take the next few moments and give you just a few practical points, like practical keys on how to live a life of nearness with the Lord. Number one, people who live lives of nearness steward lives of sacrifice. People who live lives of nearness steward lives of sacrifice. If you're a person who is near to the Lord, I promise you that person is a person of sacrifice. My favorite story to go to when I'm preaching on sacrifice that I talk a lot about around here is found in Genesis 26, verse 18. It says, Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. So 
just a little bit of a picture here. You have Abraham's generation. They're living in sacrifice. They're giving blood, sweat, and tears, and they create this wellspring that feeds, that quenches the thirst of an entire nation. Pretty incredible. At some point, the sacrifice stops. At some point, I don't know what happened, but they chose to level off and they stopped digging. And what happened was the enemy armies, the Philistines came and they, um, they put dirt inside the wells and clogged them up. And so Isaac's generation now are looking back at the past well of, I'm going to call it a well of revival. And he's saying, we need to go redig what their last generation dug. We need to go back and redig the wells that fed, fed our nation. And so uh, Isaac and his, and his people, they laid down on, in, on the altar, blood, sweat, and tears, and redug the wells that fed the nation. And so the implication of this is the enemy will always occupy territory where there's an absence of sacrifice. It was the enemy armies that clogged up the well. The enemy will always occupy territory where there's an absence of sacrifice. I've learned that I am most alive when I am most sacrificial. It's countercultural. In the natural, if you sacrifice, that means you die. But in the kingdom, you sacrifice to live. It's an upside down kingdom. The moment sacrifice leaves the altar, the fire always goes with it. I want to give you another example. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. So <laughs> King David is there, nearness to the ark, but his wife is watching from a window, distance. It says, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Verse 23, drop down. It says, and Michael daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So this woman, Saul's, or, uh, Saul's daughter, David's wife, despised David's worship, was watching from a distance. And then it has this random verse that says she was barren the rest of her life. What is, what is the implication here? It's that barrenness will always inhabit areas of our lives where there is an absence of sacrificial praise and worship. If there's ever a season in my life where I'm feeling spiritually dry, spiritually barren, one of the first <laughs> questions I ask myself, have I stopped throwing my soul on the altar? Have I stopped living in sacrifice? Have I stopped offering the Lord something that cost me something? King David said, I refuse to give the Lord anything that costs me nothing. Costly worship, costly sacrifice. We are most alive when we are most sacrificial. I want to give another example. You know, usually for me, um, I've realized for myself, I am most prone to following, falling into spiritual apathy and just kind of coasting right after I get a big breakthrough in the Lord. And it's really natural for us. It's like when one season we're, we're praying, we're fasting, we're throwing ourselves on the altar, sacrificial praise, sacrificial worship, and then all of a sudden we get the breakthrough we wanted. We get the check in the mail. We get whatever, the, the relational healing. And then we can kind of get into coast mode, get into autopilot. It's just kind of 
human nature. And so this exact thing happens in the life of Noah. Many people only focus on Noah's ark, which rightly so, but few people realize Noah didn't end his life so well. And so Noah, he, he has his greatest victory in God. He builds an ark uh, to prepare for a flood. When he's ridiculed, people have never heard of a flood before. And he builds the ark, the flood comes, animals come in two by two. The floodwaters rise, 40 days, 40 nights, and then floodwaters um, leave. And now Noah is in this predicament, living off his last breakthrough. And I want to go to Genesis chapter 9. It says in verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Please notice, Noah became intoxicated by the work of his hands. I want to say many people, after a great breakthrough, can become intoxicated with the work of ministry instead of intoxicated by the one ministry is for, who is King Jesus. I want to say that again. Many people who get a great breakthrough become intoxicated by their career become intoxicated by the work of their own hands, by, become intoxicated by their salaries, by the car they drive, by whatever, whatever great thing has happened in their lives instead of becoming intoxicated with the one who brought all that stuff to them, King Jesus. I want to invite us this year to wage war against being intoxicated by the things of the world. Become intoxicated with first love for Jesus. He's the only one that satisfies. Intoxication with Jesus instead of intoxication with possessions. All right, I want to give one more example on this point. Second Samuel chapter 11. Let's go there. It says this. This is a consequence of refusing a sacrificial life. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Notice, a time when kings go out to war, the king of Israel was remaining in Jerusalem. In other words, a time where you should be in a place of sacrifice, David was lounging. He said, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. These are the consequences of what happens. And was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of the king's house. Um, I lost my place. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elian, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she told David, I'm pregnant. And we all know what happens. David falls into intense sin. Please understand the context of David's fall. A season when kings should be out to war. He is lounging on the balcony. Pastor Bill said it like this. If you're not in the battle you were born for, you will face a challenge you have no grace for. 
I want to let that sink in. If you're not in the battle you were born for, you will face a challenge you have no grace for. In other words, David faced a challenge he had no grace for because he was not in the battle he was born for. I want to say it is costly to sit on the sidelines in a season where God has invited us to be in the battlefield. Let us be in the battle that we were born for this year. This isn't to bring shame or introspection, but many times we think we're facing a season of warfare when in reality we're just facing the consequences of our own disobedience and our own sin. It's like the devil's messing with me. It's like, no, you chose this and you're facing the consequences of your own sin. But even in that, God is so gracious. He's so merciful to always create a pathway to come back to his heart. I want to go to number two. I can go ahead and get keys up here. Number two, people who live in nearness to God cultivate a clean conscience. People who live in nearness to God cultivate a clean conscience. Hebrews 10, 22, I want to go back to Hebrews 10. It says this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, there that word is again, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So the Lord is giving us a prescription of how he wants us to draw near by faith. He's saying, draw near by faith with a clean conscience. So you may ask, how do I get a clean conscience? I'm glad you asked. First Timothy chapter one. I love the book of Timothy, the book of First and Second Timothy. This is Paul giving just spiritual father nuggets, spiritual father wisdom and advice to Timothy. And he says this, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command. In keeping with the what? Prophecies once made about you, that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a what? Good conscience. So right here. Paul is telling Timothy, your ability to walk in a clean conscience is dependent on how connected you are to your prophetic words. Your ability to walk in this life with a clean conscience is dependent, is contingent on how connected you are to your prophetic words, how connected you are to your prophetic promises. I believe the difference between a clean conscience and a defiled conscience is that a clean conscience will be warring for you, but a defiled conscience will be warring against you, will be antagonizing you, will be attacking you, that internal antagonizing thing. That is a defiled conscience. So I want to say prophetic words. When we get a prophetic word, it's so easy for us to want to put it on like a spiritual trophy case and say, look at the word I got. I'm going to the nations. And then God's like, hey, go serve in kids ministry or the toilets need cleaning. I'm not called to that. Don't serve where you think you're called. Serve where there's a need. Serve where there's a need. In um, 2018, Emily and I graduated from Bible school, and it was like our last couple months of Bible school, we got prophetic word after prophetic word after prophetic word. It was almost like uh, Elijah whenever the angel was feeding him over and over again. And Elijah's like, why are you feeding me so much? And 
The angel's like, it's because you're about to go a long way without getting food. You're about to go a long way without a word from the Lord. And uh, sure enough, after that season of getting all spiritually fattened with prophetic words, (laughs) we went a long season of just silence from God. We had a lot of prophetic words that did come to pass in that season, but we had a lot of words that the opposite happened, which don't be surprised when you get a prophetic word, the opposite happens, because that word has to get tested. It has to go from just being a word up, you know, up in the sky. It has to go from your account into your possession. When you get a word, there's something that's immediately deposited into your heavenly account. But how many know there's a difference right now between what's in my bank account and what's in my wallet, what's in my possession? And so when you get a prophetic word, that's in your account, but you need to pray that thing into your possession. And so we went into a season of, uh, you know, I was battling a lot of negative thoughts. And I woke up one morning and I was hopeless. I was sad. I was fighting depression. I was broke, miserable and broke, poor, which it's uh, better to be miserable and rich than miserable and poor because at least you can go shopping. Can I get an amen? <laughs> um, but I felt like in that, that, that day I woke up, I was like, well, Lord, I'll just wait around for my next encounter. And it was almost like the audible voice of God, not quite the audible voice, but very close to it said, you are responsible for your own mental health. Get up, go back to the last thing I said and fight this thing. What are you doing? It's like, it's time to mature now. Like that was baby Tanner. That was like spiritual milk. This it's time to start maturing, fight this thing. And so I didn't feel like it, but I got up. I began listening to every word over and over and over and over. It wasn't enough to just listen to it. I had to say it out loud. I had to pray it. Not one bit inside of me believed the word, but I didn't care. I said, Lord, you said this. I thank you this will happen. God, I thank you this will happen. And then the dark cloud left. And so the next day I woke up, the dark cloud was back. What are you going to do? Are you going to sit back and kind of just be a spectator? Or are you going to fight? I started fighting. I started saying that word again over and over and over and over and fighting it. The dark cloud left. I did this for about two months straight every day would fight that thing until I woke up. I'll never forget the day, June 1st, 2019. I woke up and it was the first time in like months I had not one dark thought antagonizing my mind. It's prophecy. It's praying these prophetic promises, praying these prophetic words. And it wasn't too long after that, I started seeing the words that were in my account start manifesting into my possession. I started walking them out. I could have a hundred prophetic words. I could have prophetic words coming out my ears. (laughs) But if I don't make the choice to say, Lord, I am going to co-labor with you. I'm going to grab onto this and I'm going to move this thing in from my account into my possession, then it'll just kind of stay floating above my head. I've heard it said before that God is obligated to fulfill every promise he gives you but he is not obligated to fulfill the potential of that promise. God is obligated to fulfill every promise, but the potential of that promise is up to you and me co-laboring with him. 
the nation of Israel, an entire nation of Israel, about two million people, received the same prophetic word that they would inherit the promised land. Out of two million people that got this word, only two of them inherited the word, Joshua and Caleb. Just let that sit in. Two million people got a prophetic word to go to the promised land that they would inherit it. Out of two million, two people inherited it. Why? Because they chose to believe in faith instead of saying, well, that, that, there's a lot of giants there. Joshua and Caleb, no, we can take it. We can get there. This is more than just mental gymnastics or mind over matter. This is declaring what the Lord has said over our lives. As Pastor David mentioned last week, the scripture in Proverbs that says, angels give heed to the word of the Lord. And I believe that every word that originates from the throne room that gets put into our heavenly accounts has a, has a color or a scent in the spirit that when we say what heaven said, angels can recognize it and be like, oh, I recognize that. That came from the throne room. We have to act on that. Angels give heed to the word of the Lord. If I have $1 million in my bank account, <laughs> but I never use it or I never make any withdrawals and I end up die of dying of starvation, that death is not God's fault. <laughs> That's my fault because I never chose to get into the prayer room and make any withdrawals. It's time to make withdrawals. We have an entire generation who is living in darkness and struggling in emotional and mental health and confusion. And instead of teaching them how to make withdrawals from their heavenly accounts through prayer, we are affirming them in their own deficiencies. I want to say we are not powerless people. We have a river of life flowing in us. All right, last point. Number three, people who live in nearness to God they use their pain to produce perseverance. James chapter one, verse two says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Don't fight against the testing don't try to opt out of the testing. Let it finish its work. It's not the best news you'll hear today, but here's the good news, because this is what's on the other side of that. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what happens when God gives you a prophetic word? What I feel like what happens is he takes a snapshot of how he sees you in the future. And then he goes into your present and hands you that snapshot and says, I see you like this. This is how I see you in the future. But there's some space between where you are at and where you're going. There's some character issues we need to work on because if I were to give you that whole thing right now, it would destroy you. It would crush you. And so I'm going to take you through this thing called testing of your faith <laughs> so that you can be the person prepared to carry the word I have for you on this side of the word so that you may be complete, not lacking anything, and you can properly steward the word. The worst thing that could ever happen is me and you getting the right thing at the wrong time. 
It's a dangerous thing to get the right thing at the wrong time because it will crush us. So the Lord allows us to be tested. I want to end with this story in John chapter 11. It's a familiar, familiar passage. It's the story where Lazarus died, the brother of Mary and Martha. And I want us to really focus on uh, Mary and Martha, their response to the Lord Jesus when pain hits their hearts. Because I believe one of the things that will make us or break us in this Christian life is how we respond to pain. Pain will either lead us into a place of offense, rigidness, accusation towards the Lord, or if we submit rightly to him, pain will take us into being mature, complete, not lacking anything. John chapter 11. So, so when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I hear this and I hear rigidness. <laughs> I hear accusation. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Typically, when people tell Jesus the words, I know, that is an indication that they don't know. <laughs> Never tell the king of the universe, no, never interrupt him and say, yeah, I know. Never a good plan. <laughs> Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who has come into the world. And when she said these things, she went, uh, she went her way and secretly called, her Mary, uh, called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. <laughs> In other words, when there's crisis, Jesus asks, go bring me someone who adores me, not someone who wants to talk theology. Verse 32, then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, please notice her response to Jesus in pain and compare it to Martha's. It says this, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right here, we can learn how to properly approach Jesus when pain hits our hearts. Mary came to Jesus, she saw Jesus, and she fell at his feet. She came, she fell, she came, she saw, she fell. Martha approached Jesus saying, the same thing, but it was almost like with pride in her heart. Mary went low. When in doubt, always go low. <laughs> What's the lesson here? Mourning will either take you into one of two places, offense and accusation, or into a deeper place of love and adoration. Pastor Bill Johnson's wife passed away about a year or two ago, and she died from cancer. She died from a disease that he sees healed all the time. And he said something that just so moved my heart. Um, he said, I refuse to live 
with accusation and offense towards God. He said, my ability to to live at peace with God is based on my willingness to live in mystery of why the healing did not happen. I would rather live in mystery of not knowing than live in accusation and offense towards the Lord. He's too holy. He's too beautiful. He's too precious. He's too wonderful. If you've tasted and you've seen him, you can, you can attest to this, that he's too beautiful for me to be offended at. He's too holy. Jesus, we thank you. What is beautiful about this story that I want to kind of stamp this message with is that directly after this, directly after Mary pours her heart on Jesus, it says Jesus wept and that he went to the tomb and raised Lazarus from the dead. And then the story directly after this, it's almost like directly after this, we see Mary in a position where she's breaking her oil at the feet of Jesus, loving him extravagantly. It's almost like these two stories are tied together. So I want to I suggest this. The crushing that you experience in one season will become the oil that you pour out on Jesus' feet in the next season. The crushing, the pain, if you lean into it, if you allow the testing to test your faith as it should, if you surrender, that crushing, that pain will have a purpose. It will be for oil. Not only that you pour on Jesus, but that you pour on the wounds of others who have been through what you've been through. You pour oil on the wounds and scars of others, people who've been abused, people who've been traumatized. Hey, I have oil for that. I've went through something and I have oil now. Right now, it doesn't feel like I have oil on this side of it. It doesn't feel, it hurts, it's painful, but I know that on the other side of this, I will be mature, I will be complete, and I will be lacking nothing. This is the hope that we can anchor our souls in. This is good news. This is good news. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.